The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The, the House Judiciary Bill uh, in, incorporates uh, a piece of legislation that I think was introduced earlier this summer, and I think it's known as the, the, the Fourth Amendment is Not for Sale Act. And this particular component of the House Judiciary uh, approach to FISA would limit how the government can acquire data from, from data brokers. And I think it's, it's, it's trying to tighten the, the rules for uh, how the government can, can purchase information from firms that don't have a direct relationship to, to consumers, uh, such as data brokers, big tech companies. I'm Stephanie Pell, Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 12, 2023. FISA Section 702 is set to expire on December 31st, 2023. Last week, two bills were marked up by two different House committees one in the House Judiciary Committee, and one in the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. To talk about these very different approaches to FISA Section 702, Reauthorization and Reform, I sat down with Preston Marquis, a JD candidate at Harvard Law School and a former analyst at the Central Intelligence Agency, Molly Reynolds, Senior Editor at Lawfare, and Benjamin Wittes, Lawfare's Editor-in-Chief. We discuss some of the key differences between these bills, the abnormal politics surrounding this reauthorization process, and an unusual floor procedure called Queen of the Hill that may be used for consideration of both of these bills. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 12th. Preston Marquis, Molly Reynolds, and Benjamin Wittes on the two House FISA Section 702 bills. We recorded this podcast on Friday, December 8th, before all the details of how these two House bills would be debated were settled. Preston, what is FISA Section 702 and what does it permit the government to do? Certainly. Well, uh, Section 702 is uh, it's a key provision of FISA that uh, essentially permits the government to, to, to conduct targeted surveillance of persons reasonably believed to be located outside the United States uh, to acquire foreign intelligence information. And it does so with the compelled assistance of electronic communication service providers. It's a key tool that, that, the, that the U.S. uses to address a wide range of uh, national security priorities, ranging from sort of counter, countering terrorism and weapons proliferation networks uh, to increasingly trying to combat sort of malicious cyber activity and and trying to warn individuals uh, when, when they may be at risk of of some sort of uh, uh, either counterintelligence or or cyber threat so it, it's a key tool in part because of the the very wide remit uh, that it's able to cover and uh, being focused uh, ex- externally um, as, as a foreign intelligence collection tool and as we know, it's going to expire on December 31st, 2023. It is a critical intelligence tool, but it is also a controversial one, and we're going to get to that. But there has been a lot of activity uh, these past several days from Congress on the reauthorization of FISA Section 702. Molly, can I turn to you to catch us up? Sure, happy to. So I think here it's helpful to start by saying just a little bit, and we can talk more about this if folks are interested, in 
the kind of unusual politics of 702 um, and of, um, of FISA, which is to say that the coalitions around support for reauthorization for potential changes to the law, and we're going to, I think, talk about sort of what is on the table, um, those coalitions are unusual in the contemporary Congress um, in that they cut across party lines in ways that few issues um, that Congress considers today uh, do. And so you have sort of folks on what I'm going to shorthand as the far right and folks that I'm going to shorthand as on the far left who are both unhappy with the status quo, which again is not a typical thing that we see in Congress. So we sort of have this kind of unusual political situation. You sort of layer on top of that the fact that in the House right now, um, Republicans have a very narrow majority and Speaker of the House, um, Mike Johnson, is still sort of figuring out what it means to lead the current House Republican Conference. And so he is kind of faced with these challenges of managing different different parts of the of the conference and you sort of take those two political realities and then you add in the fact that as uh, I think we're going to talk about in a second we have basically two like pretty fully baked proposals in the house one from the house judiciary committee one from the house intelligence committee that are both kind of again they're sort of full legislative proposals and this also is sort of unusual um, in the in the contemporary Congress in that most major legislative pro- policy priorities that we see Congress act on um, today, the leadership in one or both chambers will sort of direct the process of the development of a single legislative proposal. So we, we in a way that we maybe used to once upon a time um, see more sorts of things where different committees with a stake in a particular policy issue would develop their own proposals and there would be sort of more competition. And I, I don't mean that in a bad way, just in like a healthy legislative way over what the ultimate product looks like. That's not really what we generally see um, in Congress anymore. So we have these two proposals. Both of them are sort of robust and full. Uh, We have these political challenges, these weird political coalitions on the issue. So now there's this question of what does the House do in order to advance a proposal potentially before um, the expiration on December 31st. And so there are some uh, sort of interesting procedural questions um, about how they might do that that I'm happy to talk through. And then I'll also just put on the table for us to talk about the fact that there is in the conference report on the National Defense Authorization Act. There's a short-term um, extension of, um, of 702 that I believe is uh, would run through the beginning of April. And so that's sort of a, another, at least temporary, way out of, of what we're talking about. So that's kind of a, a high level, kind of where we are, and we can, uh, we can talk about a number of those specifics. So the two proposals that are at issue in the House. Preston, can you give us sort of comparison contrast? Because as you and Ben talk about in a piece you wrote earlier in Lawfare, the competing proposals that we have seen debated in Congress over time pick very different winners and very different losers. Absolutely. And it's it's interesting how quickly this issue has evolved because uh, when Ben and I were writing our piece, we were by and large commenting on the proposals that had emerged uh, on the Senate side, whereas over the past 48 hours or so, we've seen uh, a lot of activity ramp up on the House side, so much so that, as as Molly has pointed out, there's going to be uh, a, a very interesting sort of head-to-head matchup uh, sometime next week. So it's interesting because you know, as, uh, spiritually, I think the the compare and contrast that we laid out on uh, in written form uh, related to the Government Surveillance Reform Act that uh, Senator Ron Wyden, Senator Mike Lee, and several other sponsors had introduced, versus the bill that came from Senator Mark Warner and Marco Rubio. You know, a lot of a lot of the the elements um, sort of contained in their respective pieces of legislation have also translated to how the House Judiciary Committee and to, and to how the House Intel Committee, um, respectively, have, have sought to approach this issue. And it's interesting because the, the Government Surveillance Reform Act, I believe, was also introduced on the House side. So it would be interesting to sort of see how the House Judiciary actors and the uh, sponsors of the GSRA 
might be sort of um, inclined to bring some of their uh, provisions together. But let me let me tackle head on the, the, the root of your question, which is how does House Judiciary uh, want to tackle this issue? How does House Intel want to tackle this issue? Um, and again, <laughs> House Intel, I think only yesterday passed the FI- its FISA Reform and Reauthorization Act out of committee. Uh, so some of this is, is, uh, is evolving uh, in real time. But on the House Intel side, we had a little bit of a, of a sneak peek into where they might be going because they released the, the House Intel Committee re- released a report a, a couple of weeks ago, sort of outlining the, in broad strokes what they were looking uh, to do with, with, with uh, Section 702 reauthorization. And, and their, the, the final bill that came out of the committee largely aligns uh, with, with some of the key themes in the report. For example, it drastically reduces the number of FBI personnel who can approve U.S. person queries. It, it uh, uh, requires that that, that that individual be either an attorney or a supervisor. It would also sort of raise the, the approval threshold for certain sensitive U.S. person queries, such as queries about uh, elected officials, political candidates. So, 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 so there are some elements here that are instituting uh, reforms to Section 702 and, and the querying procedures and, and at least some of these largely codify uh, some of the policy fixes that the executive branch has already put forward to, to try to uh, bring uh, FBI queries into greater compliance with, with the, the, the querying standard. Uh, but the House Intel bill will also take uh, sort of a, a broader view of, of some FISA-related uh, uh, reforms, particularly on the traditional FISA side, as it relates to attaining probable cause orders for FISA surveillance, and, and just for, I guess, a refresher for for those who may not be familiar with with these terms. So, Section seven hundred two is at issue here in part because the the U.S. government can run queries on this information, and and if you'll recall, Section seven hundred two collection is targeted at non-U.S. persons located abroad. Uh, but sometimes in the in the course of that collection, of course, U.S. person communications can be sort of incidentally collected. And the under the current law, the U.S. government can can run queries on these holdings uh, uh, using U.S. person query terms to to try to pull back certain uh, pieces of information if it's uh, reasonably believed that doing so will retrieve will retrieve a, a piece of foreign intelligence information or evidence of a crime in the uh, case of the FBI. So that's like one bucket of FISA that is at issue here. And then of course, the other bucket or another bucket of FISA relates to traditional FISA, such as when the government has probable cause to believe that an individual might be uh, an agent or acting uh, on behalf of a foreign power, it can go to the FISA court and, and, and seek an order for a, a much broader um, suite of electronic surveillance authorities against that individual. And this particular part of, of FISA is at issue this, this go around, um, as, as listeners may be aware or familiar, uh, and, and no small part because of the, um, and forgive me if I get the name wrong, I think it's the, the cross, crossfire hurricane, uh, investigation. Uh, but basically, uh, when, when, when the FBI was, was conducting uh, a lot of the um, counterintelligence work uh, a couple of years ago it, in that investigation, it, it uh, drew up an application for a, a Trump associate, Carter Page, uh, and that and that application was was later discovered to be riddled with a, a bunch of procedural errors um, and and accuracy errors in a way that really undermined sort of uh, third party confidence that the FBI, uh, that these application processes were, were being conducted in a robust manner. And so it's useful to understand a lot of what the House Intel Committee is also trying to do with this bill, which is, uh, you know, trying to tighten uh, a lot of the um, accuracy and certification requirements that are required for probable cause FISA applications in an effort to head off other situations that um, that may uh, resemble the the Carter Page, the botched Carter Page application. Can I ask you one other question about the House Intel side? So I don't know if you had an opportunity to look at Section 504 of that bill, but 
if you did, does it does it appear that that particular section is expanding the kinds of entities that could receive Section 702 orders? It looks like it. And the, the, the exact section itself, as, as I look at the text in the bill, it, uh, it includes a lot of, uh, uh, sort of striking and, and, and amending, and, and it doesn't give a lot of sort of substantive clarification on what it's trying to do with, with its changes here. So I, I wouldn't want to sort of be inaccurate because it's, it's largely a, a technical revision of, of that definition. Um, so it's hard for me to tell at, at face value whether it's expanding or, or narrowing it. My guess, based on, based on the, the general tone of this bill, which I think is to sort of insert more uh, protections into the process, is that it might be trying to broaden the definition of an electronic communication service provider in such a way as to perhaps provide a greater uh, degree of harmony in terms of the, uh, the, the, the types of providers that, are, that, are, that would be subject to court orders, maybe to, to, to prevent additional end runs around this particular section. Uh, so that's, that's my, my, current, my current interpretation. And, and uh, Sure. But another reading of it might also suggest that you are expanding the kinds of services that are subject to 702 orders, which could also expand the scope of 702 collection. I mean, that that's another way of reading this, I presume. Absolutely. And the other thing I would add, I, I didn't state this at the top, but before we turn to the House Judiciary Committee, one, one thing I did want to note on the House Intel side is that one of its, I think one of, one of the ways it purports to take a big step forward here is, is by prohibiting FBI evidence of a crime queries uh, in the first instance. And this is, this is a change from, uh, I think, what we had seen in the report. I think the, the report that House Intel had put out a couple of weeks ago had recommended that um, uh, evidence of a crime queries under Section 702 be subject to a probable cause warrant. Um, and I think what we've seen in the exact text is um, something a little stronger by prohibiting the FBI from conducting these queries uh, subject, I, I think, to some exceptions, but, but, but largely sort of ruling out that particular piece of authority for the FBI. So turning to the House Judiciary Bill, which is very different than House Intel, can you highlight those main distinctions? Absolutely. And I would do so probably in, in maybe three or maybe three big buckets. So whereas I, whereas the House Intel side is, is largely, I think, trying to, to codify procedures that the, that the executive branch has, has largely put in place, but would generally preserve the government's abilities to run U.S. person queries. The bill from House Judiciary, H.R. 6570, I think known as the Protect Liberty Act in shorthand, would essentially shut down U.S. person queries, or it, it, it would purport to end what I think some privacy and civil libertarian advocates sort of regard as, as warrantless querying. And, and it, it, it does so pretty directly in, in Section 2, where it, it prohibits uh, querying uh, for information that would otherwise re- require a court order. It carves out some exceptions, uh, for example, when there's either concurrent authorization or, or consent, or there's an emergency situation. It also includes an exception for defensive cybersecurity queries, um, if the query is, is using a, a cybersecurity threat signature. Uh, but by and large, in pushing a lot of the, the U.S. person querying under the general requirement of, of getting a, a warrant, uh, it, it would probably have the effect of, of reducing querying in the first instance by a significant amount. Similar to House Intel, the House Judiciary Bill would limit the number of eligible personnel who could conduct U.S. person queries, and the House Judiciary Committee, as it relates to Section 702 queries, would require that foreign intelligence be the, the, the sole purpose of, of these queries. So, so that's, I think, the sort of the big tonal difference here in terms of how House Judiciary is approaching this bill versus House Intel com- versus the House Intel Committee. 
Uh, but the House uh, Judiciary Committee also has a couple of other components to the bill that I think are, are, are worth noting here. First, similar to House Intel, House Judiciary also offers a few reforms of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. I would characterize House Judiciaries as perhaps a little bit stronger in the sense that uh, particularly with the role of the Amici uh, provision, the, the House Judiciary Committee uh, largely incorporates some of the provisions from a, a prior piece of uh, legislation that, that ultimately didn't come into law, but it's known as the, the Lee-Leahy Amendment. Um, and this was, I think, included when, when Congress attempted to reauthorize Section 215 of the U.S. Patriot Act. But the, the Lee-Leahy Amendment, uh, as it relates to the amicus process, would do a couple of things. First, it would broaden the range of access that amicus are provided when uh, when they are participating in these proceedings. It would allow um, these uh, these individuals to uh, not only uh, participate uh, in sort of matters pertaining to the FISC when there are considerations of a sensitive investigation matter or a novel civil, civil liberties issue, but also when the government is presenting a request for reauthorization of programmatic surveillance. Uh, and so that, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty big expansion of the range of circumstances that um, Amici would be appointed in. And, and I think the the last thing I'll I'll offer on on House Judiciary and and, and then I'll I'll uh, uh, stop talking here because I think we have some interesting uh, territory to cover on in terms of how all this will shake out next week. But the other thing I would offer is the the House Judiciary Bill uh, in, incorporates um, a piece of legislation that I think was introduced earlier this summer, and I think it's known as the the, the Fourth Amendment is not for sale Act. And this particular component of the House Judiciary uh, approach to FISA would limit how the government can acquire data from from data brokers. And I think it's 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 trying to tighten the the rules for uh, how the government can can purchase information from firms that don't have a direct relationship to to consumers uh, such as data brokers, big tech companies. These rules already exist for consumer-facing companies like uh, telephone companies and whatnot, uh, and I, I think the bill is, is trying to harmonize uh, some of those requirements and uh, to eliminate what some people might consider to be a, a loophole as this information is, is, is collected. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime identity theft? stalking or even violence. I used to think this was silly. And then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023. And angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. 
It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule all you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. So before I turn back to to Molly to talk about how these competing proposals are are going to make their way to the House floor and what's going to happen, Ben, can I ask you to talk a little bit more about the politics of the current reauthorization process and how this current process has looked quite different from what we're used to seeing for FISA 702 reauthorization in the past? Yeah, so normally in FISA 702 reauthorization, you have a a traditional left civil libertarian set of policy objections uh, that are rooted in constitutional concerns about the scope of the Fourth Amendment that involve a kind of set of technical critiques of, of the way 702 operates. And these 
problems, this debate has been going on since before 702 was 702, when it was the Bush administration's warrantless wiretapping program done after uh, 9-11. And the issues have gotten more refined over the years as the matter has, um, as 702 has gotten more and more uh, regulated and sort of statutorily accepted. But the core of the issue remains the same, which is that people are concerned that if you use domestic surveillance of overseas parties, but are allowed to sweep in those communications, those people's communications with people here at home, you end up doing what they call backdoor surveillance of domestic parties. And that's the core of the debate. And so the traditional debate involves that critique against the answer to it by the administration and the intelligence community, which sounds something like this. Hey, this is constitutional. Courts have held this over and over and over again. It's written in law. There's no history of civil liberties abuses under this, though there are admittedly a significant history of technical compliance errors uh, that we we have worked in an iterative fashion with the court and the FBI and the NSA to improve. And by the way, this is the single most effective technical collection program in terms of delivering intelligence to the president and other decision makers that exists in the federal government. That's the traditional parameters of the debate. Oh, and, and the, the left civil libertarians on this matter always had a very small uh, group of conservative libertarians who were effectively allied with them, typified in the House by then-Representative Justin Amash and in the Senate by uh, Rand Paul. And so there was always a kernel of a a kind of anti-surveillance right in the libertarian side. And then what happened was at the time of the uh, Russia investigation, as Preston described, when uh, when the FBI surveilled Carter Page, and this was of course not done under 702, and so it's in some ways it's a giant non sequitur, but in other ways it has a a, a, a kernel of integrity, which is that the uh, a whole swath of the Republican world came to distrust the FBI and believe that the FBI was being, in the language of the Times, weaponized against conservatives, particularly Donald Trump, and that FISA, albeit a different part of FISA, was a big part of that. And so I think the politics of this are really complicated, and I, I, I think they involve basically four distinct camps. And by the way, I have no idea what the numbers associated with these camps are, but I think these are broadly speaking the the groups. There are the left civil libertarians who have a developed principled argument against 702 in its current form. Some of them are against 702 altogether, and uh the m- most of them would settle for some form of 702, but want it to have a warrant requirement attached to the ability of the FBI to query uh, that data. That's group number one. Group number two are conservatives who hate the FBI since 2016 and 2017 and don't want to reauthorize anything that involves uh, giving the FBI authority to conduct surveillance, which they are convinced will be directed against them. Uh, the rhetoric of this is very similar to, you know, and social media companies are targeting conservatives, but they are functionally allied with the left right now, at least as a policy matter on 702 reauthorization. The third group is the people who I would say like I identify with, 
which is the, you know, apologists for and advocates of the deep state and its authorities. I'm being a little bit sarcastic there, but people who say, hey, we need strong intelligence authorities. There's no evidence of abuse of this authority, though there is evidence of a lot of mistakes. And uh, the right answer to mistakes is to improve compliance and fix compliance problems. But this is a really effective program, both in the counterterrorism space and also in the, you know, informing us about Vladimir Putin's intentions and Xi's intentions, right? This is a really important intelligence tool that's not being abused. Let's not kneecap our own intelligence services. That's group number three. And then group number four, which I'm convinced used to be, it probably still is, the overwhelming majority of both the Senate and the House is people who just don't care very much about this issue, but, and will vote for whatever kind of is the prevailing most popular thing that will get them in the least trouble with the fewest of their constituents. And I think the the giant shift that you're describing is twofold. One is the development of a hardcore anti-intelligence authority Republican constituency. And the second is a big shift in for that that fourth group of what the path of least resistance is. So Molly, let me turn back to you then. How is this going to get resolved, at least on the House side? What, what, what's the path or path, or if there's more than one, please tell us. Yeah. So um, I will, uh, we're recording this on Friday. Um, I will talk about what has been reported as um, a possible procedural path for um, kind of resolving this debate between the House Intel Committee's version and the House Judiciary Committee's version. I want to, before I sort of get into the procedural weeds, as is my want, I want to just sort of lay out kind of why this particular procedural path, which is unusual, why it's on the table and why it might make sense in this situation. And so picking up on kind of, and I think Ben is broadly right in thinking about these four groups of um, members. I too don't really have a sense of how big each one of them is, but I think we want to layer on top of that the fact not sort of been laid out the evolution among some Republican members of Congress on their feelings towards the FBI and government surveillance um, since 2016-2017, that is sort of part and parcel of a kind of broader evolution um, over that same time period in the House Republican Conference, which has kind of generated this point where you have folks who are who have been quite willing to rebel against the House Republican leadership. So they're the folks who were holdouts against uh, selecting Kevin McCarthy as speaker in the first place. They were the, you know, were pivotal in the several week long saga to pick a first to depose McCarthy and then to pick a new speaker. And I, I say this because some of what Speaker Johnson seems willing to tolerate in bringing 702 to the floor is an amount of uncertainty about the ultimate outcome that is, again, kind of unusual for the contemporary Congress. And the the there's sort of this long tale of some promises that Kevin McCarthy made to some of these kind of you might call them the more rebellious faction of the Republican conference um, about opening up the process in the House and um, allowing members to have more say in what comes to the floor. And that's all sort of that it's not directly related to 702, but it's all sort of um, hovering over this debate. And so what um, Speaker Johnson has indicated is that he may be willing to try something called a Queen of the Hill procedure to bring um, the Judiciary Committee's version and the Intel Committee's version to the floor. Now, what is a Queen of the Hill procedure? So by sort of way of background, in the House of Representatives, most legislation that is sort of big and substantive comes to the floor of the House under what's called a special rule. So basically, the House Rules Committee will, before a piece of legislation comes to the floor, the House Rules Committee will report out a special rule that sets the terms for debate for a given bill. 
And then before the bill itself comes up for um, for debate, they will first debate the special rule for the bill um, that will have in it, you know, how many amendments can be offered, which amendments can be offered, um, how long will debate last for, um, are there points of order that need to be waived, that kind of thing. We've generally thought of the House Rules Committee as kind of a tool of the majority party leadership. Um, House Republicans have been sort of challenging that assumption over the course of the year, and we've saw it, we've seen a number of these special rules actually fail on the floor. So again, all this kind of like churn that we're that we're seeing in the in the conference. But um, one kind of very particular version of a special rule that the House um, can consider is what's called the Queen of the Hill rule, which says that the House will consider sort of a series of, uh, in this case, fully formed proposals. So here we're talking about the Judiciary Committee's proposal and the Intel Committee's proposal. They'll consider them, they'll vote on each one of them. And then the one that gets the most votes, provided it gets a majority, the one that gets the most votes is the one that rules the day. This is um, the Queen of the Hill is a kind of evolution from an earlier procedure called the King of the Hill. The transition from King of the Hill to Queen of the Hill um, happened in conjunction with the switch to the House Republican majority in 1995. So this is these these are not brand new things. They're not used especially heavily anymore, largely because, as I said at the top, now we exist in a House of Representatives where almost everything is very tightly managed by the party leadership. So the idea that Speaker Johnson might be willing to say, I don't actually know which one of these might win, but the way out of this particular political uh, situation uh, in which I find myself is to kind of let the the will of or the House work its will is, uh, I think, where we are. Um, again, the sort of particular set of circumstances that makes this plausible are kind of unusual. Um, the last thing I'll say is that the last time we kind of had a serious discussion about seeing something come to the floor of the House under a Queen of the Hill rule was back in 2018, um, when Paul Ryan was trying, who was then the Speaker, was trying to find his way out of a political uh, challenge around considering immigration legislation. And I'm saying this in part because of the way this story ends, which is that um, there was um, a push from some members in Ryan's own conference, some Republicans who really wanted to see the uh, see the House act on a proposal to um, address the uh, the dreamers. So um, individuals who were brought to this um, this country by their parents uh, as undocumented individuals before they were before they were 18. And so there's this sort of faction in the Republican conference who really want to see the House vote on legislation to address the dreamers. They were out of step with um, a lot of other of their House Republican colleagues. And so they were really pushing for a Queen of the Hill option where the House would vote on a series of immigration proposals. And what Ryan eventually did is say, okay, we're not going to use this procedure. We are going to have two separate votes, however, on two different alternatives. That um, ended with neither of those alternatives getting a majority in the House of Representatives, <laughs> um, and this being one of a series of attempts by the, the House and the Senate over the past decade plus to address immigration that got left by the wayside. Um, so I've just sort of sketched this whole scenario out for you. Um, we it may sounds may- more like pauper of the hill than king of the hill. <laughs> sure. <laughs> we may or may not see this particular procedure used. Um, it would be sort of interesting both to people like me if it was. It would also, again, tell us something about the politics that we're talking about right here. But I do want to caution folks that one, things can change. Um, the House Rules Committee is scheduled to meet um, on Monday um, on uh, exactly what this will look like. Um, And then Johnson has said uh, floor consideration uh, would be subsequent to that next week. Um, And then two, even if this does eventually, if this is the the way out of this very particular piece of this um, this situation, it may not ultimately lead to either of these passing the House, let alone being the basis for for what becomes law. Um, And then the last thing I'll say, just to repeat something I said earlier, that's kind of floating out there adjacent to this is the fact that there is this temporary extension that's included in the um, conference report on the National Defense Authorization Act. There are some members in the House, primarily to refer to Ben's factions um, from that kind of anti-FBI, uh, anti-helping the FBI faction, um, who have said that they are they oppose inclusion of this extension in the NDAA. There are some folks from that, um, I think, several, the sort of left civil libertarian faction who have said the same. 
whether the NDAA um, passes or not, I don't think ultimately hinges on this particular provision. I think uh, it's going to need a whole lot of votes to pass because that's the world that we're living in right now, particularly in the House. And I don't think I think the people, particularly on the Republican side of the aisle, who are objecting to the temporary um, extension of 702 are folks who are likely to vote against the NDAA because they're angry about other things in the NDAA as well. But that's one other sort of piece of this puzzle that listeners should be keeping um, an eye on um, over the next couple of weeks. And Molly, there was actually a very interesting bipartisan letter that came out, was there not, where, you know, these these factions that you and Ben have described basically were saying to House and Senate leadership, do not include a, a temporary 702 extension in the NDAA. This is an important policy issue and it needs standalone bills that are voted on, correct? Yeah. So um, again, if you look at the the list of signatories to that letter, it is um, it is a coalition of people who you don't usually see in the current U.S. Congress cooperating with one another. Um, but again, it just illustrates um, the very sort of particular politics of this. Um, I think basically my read of the situation is that once the temporary extension made it into the NDAA conference report, um, again, like I don't think that's what makes or breaks the NDAA. Um, Speaker Johnson himself, like sort of flipped flopped on whether he was supportive of doing that or not. I read that as, if nothing else, just another example of how he's still figuring out what it means to lead the House of Representatives, particularly the current House of Representatives Republican Conference. But um, again, my read is that the NDAA is going to sink or swim um, on a whole lot of things. But this is certainly one of the kind of extra things that um, might ride along with it. So let me pose this next question to any or all of you. L- let's assume that the NDAA actually passes with this temporary extension language, which would again extend FISA 702 into, I believe, April 19th or so- sometime mid-April. That seems to give the administration an interesting opportunity insofar as if the current certifications under 702 are expiring sometime in April, then presumably they could get them re-upped and buy another year of time. Does that sound sort of like part of the game here? Or, or please, Ben? I think that's part of the game, whether you pass a temporary extension or not. What actually expires on December 31st is the authority to seek new orders or to ask the court for extensions of orders. But uh, the orders can last, I believe, up to a year. And so what doesn't expire is existing orders. And so whenever the date of expiration comes, you can assume, of course, all these orders are classified and all the applications are classified. But I think it's fair to assume that if expiration date is December 31st or April 19th, on that day, the uh, Justice Department goes to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court with a big stack of order requests and gets those orders entered and has kind of a year. Now, what they can't do over that year is amend those orders or change or alter them, and so which they do on a kind of routine basis. And so as technology changes, as the use of technology changes, as a variety of things changes, you have this kind of declining utility of surveillance, and the orders become increasingly brittle and inflexible until they are no longer useful and finally expire altogether. I am sure that with 23 days to go in the year, the administration would be delighted to have a six-month or four-month extension to allow Congress to do business uh, in a less chaotic environment. And and so I, I don't know whether the administration has had anything to say about that provision of the NDA, but I'm certain it is not a problem from the administration or the intelligence community's point of view. I do think there is, I say this as a 
foe of the the two on the merits of the two communities that have advanced this letter, I kind of agree with them about not about necessarily opposing an extension, but I have a certain sympathy with the idea that hey, seven o two is a is a really important discrete set of policy decisions that we've been fighting about off and on since two thousand and seven. And I think there's something to be said for having a standalone piece of legislation. It's not. We've had five years of knowing this date was coming. There, it's not. You know, it's not like this crept up on anybody and bit them in the butt. Uh, we decided to make a crisis out of this. And I have a certain sympathy with the left and the right who says, "Hey, we don't want to have to have, you know, a vote." on 702 in which we're also talking about policy of you know in, uh, you know uh, in Syria and Iraq and talking about you know drone strikes right like the, we just want to have a vote about the merits of this issue and i i got to say as somebody who would vote very differently from the way all those people would i don't disagree with them about that procedural point well we'll have to stay tuned and see what happens. We will leave it there for today. So thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org slash support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Lawfare's own Benjamin Wittes. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.